Well, welcome to another evening GP Rolling Programme webinar. And it's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Kenwyn James. Um, Kenwyn is a consultant anaesthetist at Southampton General Hospital and has a host of other special skills and uh, expertise. In particular, he is excellent at training and we're going to have the benefit of his thoughts today on very interesting topic particularly pertinent to GPs I think you'll agree critical decision making how do we go about making all those numerous important decisions at speed under pressure and all the time so um, I would love to hear Kenwin's presentation now. Um, I think he's going to be talking to us. I will be watching the chat and uh, there will be time for questions at the end. So without further ado, thank you very much, Dr. Kenwin James. Uh, thanks very much, Steph. I'm just going to try and work the technology first. Um, and I'm hoping that you've got that there. Uh, can you just can I just check can everyone see that or can you see it Steph so that we can carry on yeah all great we can see it nice and clear okay so thank you very much for that uh, as Steph said I am Kenwin James I am uh, an anaesthetist in Southampton uh, and on top of that I'm already planning my exit strategy from clinical medicine so I'm also a partner of Neath Packs, uh, which I am just going to uh, shamelessly plug here before going any further we provide mediation, but particularly medical mediation, uh, as well as some uh, skills in communication to try and avoid the need for communication in the first place. And we have a particular interest in learning reviews, which actually involves understanding how the decision making processes were made, both when they've been good outcomes and poor outcomes. Um, <clears throat> so critical decision making. What I'm particularly, I'd just like to emphasise this is about critical decision making, not helping you become critical of decision making. Um, I think most medics are already way ahead of the game with that. So this is particularly about how we make decisions. And I'd like to start with a couple of uh, slides that may seem not to be related, but are. So what do you see there? It may seem quite obvious. Some of you may or may not have seen the cigar. <coughs> they met in a bar where he offered her a ride home. He took her down unfamiliar streets. He said it was a shortcut. And I wonder what you're thinking at this point and whether this slide makes you think any differently. And then my third one to start with is how many times does the letter F appear in this sentence? And I think most of you will have picked up the fact that it is obviously six. And it's slightly different uh, presenting like this to how I normally do, because I normally do get some feedback from people. And so I apologise if whatever I say doesn't uh, particularly time with your response. In a group, normally in a lecture theatre, you will get some idea as to whether you're thinking the same way as other people. <coughs> so the purpose of these particular slides is to show that we don't always get things right. We don't always get a perfect assessment of what's going on. And unfortunately, in the world of medicine, when that does happen, it tends to hit the press in quite a big way. We get massive headlines. There are some pretty awful results uh, coming out of us and our flawed decision making. And here's another one here. <coughs> a woman given erectile dysfunction cream for dry eye. As you can see there, a woman has suffered chemical injuries after she was mistakenly prescribed erectile dysfunction cream for a dry eye condition. 
If you actually read the whole article from about a year ago, she was not prescribed erectile dysfunction cream. <coughs> she was prescribed Vitapos. And I suspect most of you know better than I do that that is a liquid paraffin um, lubricant. But she was actually dispensed Vitaros, which is prostaglandin E1, which is a vasodilator used for erectile dysfunction. And quite often the response when people see headlines like that, and I can certainly vouch for that from uh, my father, is who on earth messed up? <coughs> Didn't they know what they were doing? Were they not paying attention? Are they poorly motivated or are they just downright negligent? And whilst it might seem understandable to jump to those conclusions with the outcomes that we sometimes get, in a group of, I think we've got 27 in total here now, if we were in a room together, I suspect at least one of you put the wrong fuel in your car at some point. And when that happens, that is also an error, and the processes behind it may be exactly the same as dispensing an incorrect drug. But most people do know what fuel they should be putting in their car. Now, they may not be paying attention, and that may be contributing to it. I suspect most people are not poorly motivated, uh, and they're certainly not negligent. But up to 150,000 times a year, the wrong fuel is put in the car. So how come we make these errors? How come we can't necessarily train them out of ourselves, however hard we try? Well, I'm going to show you a list of words now, and I'm going to test you on them later. So I don't want you to write them down. And as I say, it's very difficult for me to get feedback here. <coughs> but what I would like you to do is look through these words, uh, and then we will come back to them later. Okay, now again, I can't see you at the moment, but what I would like you to do is a little bit of mental arithmetic and multiply 18 by 57. And then when you finish that, what I'd like you to do is raise your non-dominant hand and just go one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. And now what I'd like you to do is recite the last five letters of the alphabet in reverse order. So starting with Z. And obviously I have to take it on some faith that you're doing that, but reciting the last five letters of the alphabet, starting from Z. <coughs> now, I'm now gonna give you 20 seconds. And if you've got pen and paper or some sort of electronic device there, just to test yourself on how many of those words you actually managed. And uh, if you just get whatever you need now to write that down and your 20 seconds starts now. Okay, that's your time up. Now, uh, Steph, I don't know, is there any way of actually getting everybody's pictures up here and putting cameras on? Or are we just sort of tied at the moment? I've only got the panellists here. I can when it's Joanna. I believe we're in a webinar format rather than um, meeting, unfortunately, <clears throat> okay. we can't. But we can use the chat if okay, you need so to. Right. Okay, no, that's fine. So, first of all, I just... Uh, Based on the fact that you've gone through uh, those and have presumably written them down and been uh, mercilessly honest and truthful about it, uh, let's just see how you got on. Uh, normally, I would ask for a raise of hands here. So whether you got bed, whether you got dream, who got doze, who got sleep, just a sort of a, a general overview. 
Um, if you've got all four of those, well done. Uh, as you saw, they were considerably more than that. And just to sort of check all again, you can go back there. And I suspect some of you will have written sleep down and will now see that sleep is not actually on that list. So how come you've written down a word that wasn't on there? Well, there's a number of things here. One is that we do not process data as computers do. We tend to mistake data for interpretation. Computers just work and access raw data. We don't, we turn it into an interpretation. We work around stories. And so any information that we gain, we try and fit to a story. We use labels, we jump to conclusions, and we quite often base that on experiences from the past. And we also have a very limited working memory. And by potentially stressing that working memory, by getting you to undertake some uh, mental arithmetic, by getting you to do something with your non-dominant hand and then testing you in a, in a way that you're not normally tested, that puts pressure on our working memory, which tends to cause us to revert to the sort of stories we've gone with rather than remembering the raw data. So as I say, we don't interpret things, we put them into stories and we base them very much on our previous experiences. <clears throat> So I don't know what you see there. Well, I mean, I've got a fair idea what you're seeing there based on previous reactions when I've shown this slide. My five-year-old daughter, when I showed it to her, saw a ballerina because she doesn't have the same filthy mind that some of you do. My two-year-old son was the only person I've ever shown this to who straight away saw the dolphins. And if you did see those, well done, but without the feedback, I can't guarantee it. So we match things to patterns and my five-year-old daughter had a thing for Disney at the time, therefore ballerinas, princesses, those were the things that she enjoyed. We were living in Coogee at the time in Sydney. My son had seen a pod of dolphins two weeks before, so this was his association with it. So we match things to patterns and we match things to our expectations. And it's just useful to be aware that actually one of the things that we'll come on to later is as experts, we build lots of patterns that we can fit the information that we're presented with too and we may not always be correct. It may sometimes be the least experienced person who can actually offer a sensible idea as to what's going on. It's a little bit like the emperor's new clothes. So we don't process raw data, we interpret it, and we interpret it based on our previous experiences. And unfortunately, there's no such thing as multitasking either. Well, I mean, there is to a limited extent, <coughs> although what we normally do instead of multitask is we jump from task to task. But one of the reasons for that is we do have very limited attentional bandwidth. So when we walk into any situation, our eyes are flicking from point to point and what we're thinking about is all sorts of things. Very similar to this picture here where most of you may see some motion, although there is no motion in the picture. Now, if you don't see it, uh, I understand that as people get older, they struggle to see the movement. So that may be the explanation here. But if you're looking at it and seeing motion, if you concentrate on one of the black dots in the middle, you'll find that that motion disappears. And that's what we do. If we walk into a very busy environment, we would be completely overloaded and paralyzed by all the information available to us. So what we do is we focus down at the cost of situational awareness. So we're not using all the information around us. We choose what to concentrate on because otherwise we just would not be able to process anything at all. So we don't process raw data, we turn it into stories. We've got limited attentional bandwidth, which compromises our situational awareness. And it gets worse. <clears throat> Communication is a bit of a problem for us. Okay. I know that everyone here has gone through extensive communication skills training, but the problem is we don't get to choose whether we're good at communication. It's a two way process. 
and we don't always have control over how the recipient of our message receives it and likewise the information we're gaining from someone else we may not be receiving exactly what they are hoping that we get as george bernard shaw said the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place and there is nothing so simple that it cannot be understood Back in 2003, I think it was, when I was uh, starting off as an anaesthetic registrar, I was doing cardiac anaesthesia. And the way that that works to try and get the throughput um, as efficient as possible is at the end of one operation, the consultant finishes that case, takes that patient down to intensive care, and the registrar starts the next case. I was in the anaesthetic room, patient turned up, I'd done all the checks to make sure we were about to do the correct thing on the correct patient, and my consultant colleague came in and from the other side of the room went like that. 25 minutes later, I was feeling quite pleased with myself. I'd anaesthetized this relatively complex patient. I put a couple of drips in, arterial line, central line, everything was teed up. In 25 minutes, I was feeling quite pleased with myself. At which point my consultant colleague comes in, looks at the situation, says, what on earth have you done? Those weren't his exact words, but I'm just paraphrasing for the uh, slightly more sensitive among us. So what do you mean, what have I done? I've, I've put her off to sleep as you asked. He said, but I said, stop. I said, no, you didn't. You went, all right. Exactly the same exchange. And we took two completely different things out of it. And this poor unfortunate lady that I had anaesthetized needed to be woken up without her operation because there'd been a complication in the previous case and they couldn't actually get her off cardiac bypass. It had quite a profound effect on me with regards to communication, but it is one of those things you need to be aware of. So I'm thinking of a bus driving down a lane. Okay. Now again, this is one of those situations where in an ideal world, I would then point to some poor unsuspecting person in the front row of the audience and say, what colour is your bus? But if you just think what colour your bus is and whether it's a single decker or a double decker, I guarantee in a room of 24, again, having done this a number of times before, someone will say a red bus, someone will come up with a different colour bus. There'll be single deckers, there'll be double deckers. My bus is the one in the middle there. The one that says 373, so a white bus with a blue rim around the bottom. 373, it's the one that goes from Coogee to Circular Keys in Sydney. And there's no reason you would guess that unless you had quite an in-depth knowledge about my history and about where I might have come into contact with buses. And that's a pretty straightforward comment. And yet with our mental image is completely different. I don't know what sort of lane you were thinking of. Maybe it was a country lane, maybe it was a city lane, maybe it was a designated bus lane, maybe it was left-hand drive, maybe it was right-hand drive. A bus driving down a lane is a very simple representation of how something that seems so obvious to you can mean something completely different to someone else. A lot of you will have seen this before. <clears throat> and what this is demonstrating is that not only do we not look and use all the information around us, but we don't need all the information around us to make sense of something. We are all cognitive misers, some of us more than others, but basically we work as hard as we can to reduce the effort our brains go through. They use an awful lot of oxygen, they use an awful lot of glucose, and we don't like expending too much energy. So we can actually, just by glancing something without going into the exact detail, get an understanding of it. And as part of our energy saving process, we use shortcuts, we use heuristics, we use rules of thumb, which are fantastic until they don't actually fit the situation we're working towards. 
In effect, all animals are under stringent selection pressure to be as stupid as they can get away with. That's the problem we have with a lot of our decision making. We don't process data in the same way as computers. We have limited attentional bandwidth. We lose our situational awareness as a result of that. We're not as good at communication as we would like to think we are. We use shortcuts, we use rules of thumb. And whilst there is benefit to those because they approximate to an accurate answer most of the time, they're not foolproof. And if we pick the wrong one, we may end up in trouble. If we're hungry, angry, late, tired, sorry, there's a delay on this depending on how I talk, or generally stressed, then all of these tend to come to the fore in our decision-making. And quite often, any errors that come about are now put down to human error. Now that's a step on from who the heck messed up, but human error, even in our no-blame culture, tends to emphasize the fact that even though we're in a no-blame culture, we're always very keen to know who it is we're not blaming. But if that is contributing to our decision-making problems, then everyone knows that the best way to improve performance is to reduce errors. So how do we go about reducing these errors? Well, Daniel Kahneman, who got the Nobel Prize for Economics a number of years ago, wrote a book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And a lot of you may be aware of this, and even if you're not aware of the book, may be aware of some of the information within it. But the FAST system is system one. It's the heuristic-based system I've been talking about. It's the intuitive decision-making system. It allows us to ignore certain bits of information to come to our conclusions. It's very much based on the here and now, and it is prone to error and cognitive bias. System two is the slower, more analytical, conscious, rule-based process. It allows us time to gather, grade, and sort various streams of data. It allows us to plan for the future and is much more reliable. And if decisions are choices from among several options, then it would seem sensible that tapping into system two is gonna to lead to more accurate decision-making. And so if you wanna know how to make better decisions, one postulated um, technique is we canvas a wide range of options so that we've got various things to compare. We then survey a full range of objectives as to what we actually want to get out of this at the end of our decision-making. Then we weigh up the costs, risks, and benefits of each option. It may be that you actually make a grid as a result of it. Maybe if you're looking to buy a new house, you might go, okay, <clears throat> house A looks great because it's got two bathrooms, which is important to us. Um, it's got a great garden and it's got a great kitchen. But then you look at B and C. <coughs> Sorry. And you also think, but actually, number two there, which is close to a good school, is more important to us. So you might actually weigh up the numbers and maybe grade them a little bit more. <coughs> And once you've done all that and you've gathered all your information, you've weighed up the different costs and risks and benefits, you make a decision. Well, we know that actually the more options we have to compare between, the more accurate our decision making is going to be. So we then go searching for new information and evaluating the options. And we assimilate that new information and we re-examine positive and negative consequences of each option. So it may be, yes, it's got two bathrooms, but they've both actually got water coming from central heating, or what if the boiler goes, you know, I remember a time where we lost all our water, but an electric shower, does that factor in there? So you put in the positives and negatives of each option, and then you plan those contingencies. You know, if we buy this house, will we be able to change some of those shower settings? Actually, we don't like the kitchen, but maybe we could actually use some money to put a new kitchen in. And you carefully plan for all those eventualities, 
and you make a decision. <clears throat> and Janice and Mann, who put this forward back in 1977 as a, an example of rational decision-making, pointed out that whilst it seems very sensible, this option, there are a certain number of downsides to it. It's not really well geared for time-critical decision-making. It takes a lot of time. It is very dependent on having a full range of options available to you. And the downside to that is if you cannot be trusted or we cannot be trusted to make the big decisions that warrants decision-making tools, how can we be trusted to actually make the smaller decisions that make up the larger decision-making tool? On top of that, there is absolutely no evidence that such an extensive tool results in better decisions being made. It leads to a consistency in decision-making and may actually allow more consistent decision-making between various different people. And it certainly allows you to justify your decisions. But as I say, there's no evidence it actually results in better decision-making. So if that doesn't work, what other options have we got? Well, there's procedures and policies, <clears throat> much loved by all medics, I'm sure. Now this is a screenshot from a number of years ago, actually probably four or five years ago at our trust. And if you can sort of see on there, uh, there are over, let's say over 1600 documents. There's over a thousand procedures. There's over 800 guidelines. I've written four of these guidelines and I cannot remember what I wrote. And if I can't remember what I wrote, how should other people be expected to tap into that? One of the other things is actually being able to get hold of the policies and guidance when you need it. And this is one of my favorite uh, notices that I've seen in our theatres, which is a clearly flammable piece of paper telling us that all the other flammable pieces of paper have been removed. But actually getting access to the policies and procedures is really difficult. There was a letter in The Lancet back in 2005. And what that said is we surveyed one acute medical take in our hospital in a relatively quiet take. We saw 18 patients with a total of 44 diagnoses. The guidelines that the on-call physician should have remembered and applied correctly for those conditions came to 3,679 pages. This number included only NICE, the Royal College and major societies from the last three years, so no local guidelines. If it takes two minutes to read each page, the physician on call will have had to spend 122 hours reading to keep abreast of the guidelines for a single 24-hour period. So whilst they may seem like a great idea, one, they need to be read, they need to be remembered. And the other thing is they tend to be slow moving. They tend to take a while to write. They tend to be the sort of thing that we're judged against subsequently. And quite often, in my experience, they're written by people who aren't actually at the sharp end of things. Certainly in Southampton General Hospital, the policy for putting arterial lines in was written by someone who's never put an arterial line in. I'm sure you will come across similar things across where you work. And the other thing is they're very good for very controlled environments where there's no variability and everything's nice and calm. And they tend to be policy and procedure manuals, but they don't pay an awful lot of attention to how we actually do things when we're really busy and short-staffed. They concentrate as work as intended or work as imagined rather than work as done. And this is basically exactly the same as this picture here. It's all very well to have an ideal for how things should be done. But the people who are at the cold face, the people who know what's going on, the people who are actually doing this all the time, learn whether they're workarounds or whether they're just more efficient ways of doing things. The other thing with them is they tend to bring everyone down to sort of the lowest common denominator, which may be very helpful for inexperienced individuals. But if you're going to be judged against them, 
the only way policies and procedures get moved forward and the only way new things come about is to actually somewhere along the way have someone deviating from the policies and procedures so policies and procedures tend to inhibit innovation they tend to inhibit the ability to try different things they're great if you're just in this nice calm controlled environment underneath the hands here but if you compare that to other sorts of decision making such as maybe turning right across uh, or turning right out of a side street across traffic if you're in that nice little calm environment there what you would generally do is think okay so to decide whether i can make this turn i need to time the gap between the two cars coming towards me i need to work out how long it will take me to take off from where i am now cross the traffic and get safely into the other side of the traffic and if i subtract one from the other and make an allowance for one car speeding up or whether it's slowing down and any other traffic around then i can decide whether to go that's not the environment that we find ourselves in when we decide to turn right and that's not the environment we find ourselves in when we decide to actually make any of these decisions we work in a much more turbulent environment and using the analogy of the car turning right we need to get where we need to get to we've got traffic behind us we're under time stress and just like at work, there are high stakes involved. There's dynamic settings. There are organisational constraints. There may be multiple players at play on the roads. But going back to what we do for a living, there's uncertainty. We don't know what the end goal is. And the thing that actually we fall back on is experience. That's the thing that's never measured in any of these experiments, in any of these studies. We have experience in what we do, and that affects our decision making. With the turning right into traffic, what we do is we compare it to previous experience and we think, actually, we don't measure all these variables. We just think, yes, I think it'll be safe because I don't think I'm going to cut it as close as the multiple times before where I've been honked at by the car I've almost cut up. What we do at work with all these dynamic environments, with all the pressures we're under, is we use our experience. As medics, we're generally very proud of our explicit knowledge. We get tested on it. Uh, most of us have done very well at GCSEs, at A-levels or O-levels before GCSEs, um, at university exams and at postgraduate exams, and it's very easy to measure what we know. But actually, there's a huge wealth of knowledge we have that it's not quite so easy to describe. Our ability to recognise patterns, our perceptual discriminations, our mental models and our ability to judge typicality. I'm a big fan of telling medical students that even if there's nothing obvious going on, they should just go and see patients. They should examine their friends. They need to get to know what normal is because it's only by knowing the range of normal across a population that you can actually tell what abnormal is. And when it comes to mental models and judging typicality, I take you back to the um, story of Silver Blaze, which is the theft of a racehorse with Sherlock Holmes. And Inspector Gregory says, there's any point to which you wish to draw my attention. And Holmes says, to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. The dog did nothing in the nighttime, said Gregory. That was the curious incident. Our ability to recognise patterns is also linked to our ability to see what's missing and say, actually, that doesn't feel right because it doesn't have X, Y or Z involved. And all this tacit knowledge goes into intuition, which is the use of experience to recognise key patterns that indicate the dynamics of the situation. And it's the sort of thing afterwards when things are being investigated that it's very difficult to necessarily bring out what it was you were thinking. 
And that's often frowned upon, but this has evolved for a reason. Our ability to make decisions quickly based on intuition has actually got a survival benefit and an evolutionary benefit. So I'll just wait for the next slide to come across. Where's the risk here? Where's the danger? Okay. Sorry, there's, there's a bit of a delay and I apologize for that. Um, that's the sort of thing that from an evolutionary point of view, we've had to detect and act on without necessarily being able to say, well, actually the pattern there is slightly different to the foliage underneath. And in the book, The Black Swan, Nassim Nicholas Talib said, my counterfactual introspective and hard thinking ancestor would have been eaten by a lion while his non-thinking but faster reacting cousin would have run for cover. Evidence shows we do much less thinking than we believe we do. We rely on our tacit knowledge and on our pattern recognition and on our ability to access huge amounts of data without actually being able to express it accurately. And when we come back to reducing errors and telling people not to do this, one of the key things you have to remember is that getting rid of what you don't want doesn't give you what you want. You need to replace it with something. If you just concentrate on reducing errors, you're playing not to lose. You're taking everything down to the most basic of levels. If you wanted to put a top sports team together, you would actually want to go and speak to the All Blacks and get some insights and expertise as to what they do to make them so good. If you wanted to start a great business, you wouldn't go and interview the five people at the front of the queue filing for bankruptcy. So as well as reducing errors, what we need to do is look at what works well and how experts in a field do actually make decisions. And Gary Klein is a psychologist from the States who's done an awful lot of this with teams who work in high stakes environments. He's worked with the military, he's worked with firefighters, he's worked with healthcare workers, he's done experiments. I appreciate it's not quite such high stakes, but with chess players who process huge amounts of information as well. And with one of his first studies into this, he interviewed a large number of fire commanders and spoke to them about what happened during major incidents and during certain fire episodes. And universally across the board, it turns out that the first thing they go to is, is the situation they're dealing with one they've dealt with before? And they don't come up with a whole list of reasons as to why it is. They just know whether it's familiar or not. They use their tacit knowledge. They use their pattern recognition. They use their mental models and their assessment of typicality to decide whether this is something they've encountered before. And once they do recognize it, and it does fit in a, fit a pattern for us, they're able to identify the relevant cues that will help sort out the problem. They're able to decide which of the dark circles to look at in the visual illusion I showed you earlier, which is about to come up when it actually files across. Because actually earlier, when I asked everyone to look at a black spot and stop the movements, I don't know which one you looked at. But by having some idea as to the typicality of the situation, by recognising it as something that we've seen before, we're able to identify relevant cues. We're able to look at specific points of information there. We have certain expectancies. We've got an idea as to how we've got to this point because our mental model and our ability to recognise the natural history of something allows us to predict how we've got to this point in the first place, but also to identify what might happen afterwards and how things are going to develop. And it allows us to use plausible goals to identify where we want to go with this. And only at that point, 
which may be a split second after we've identified all of these factors, do we decide on an action? And taking you back to the book by Daniel Kahneman, the title there is Thinking Fast and Slow, not Thinking Fast or Slow. And Gary Klein put this together into a whole process of thinking after he'd spoken to an awful lot of fire commanders and uh, people working in other areas as well. And this is recognition prime decision making. And the box in the middle is the one that we've already covered. It's the recognition of what's going on. And if you identify something that's familiar, we go straight to an action. And it's at this point, there's a degree of the slow type two thinking. Because what we then need to do is work out whether that is actually the course of action that we've chosen is going to get the desired outcome. And I know that previously we've talked about a decision as being uh, a choice out of a number of options, but if we take a decision as a choice point where reasonable options exist and a different one may have been selected, we don't actually have to have thought about the other ones for it to be a decision. And that's what Klein found. People generally use a very serial approach to this. They come up with one action and then they go through a mental simulation using type two thinking to decide whether it will have the desired effect. If it does, they carry on with it. So they pick the first option that will do what they want to do. It's a process called satisficing rather than optimizing. We don't compare various options to come up with the best one. What we do is we go for the first one that will actually get the desired outcome. So if we picked an action and our simulation of the action will get the outcome that we want, then we go with it. If it doesn't, we go back and we think again. And there's a constant feedback loop here. So that if when you start doing the action that you wanted, so um, I don't know, let's say you get someone, you see someone walking through the door of your practice and they've got that slightly gray look and you're already thinking, okay, I immediately know this patient isn't well. And the first thing they tell you is I've got this horrible crushing chest pain. You've already decided what's wrong with them, almost certainly. You now know what the relevant cues are, so you will ask some very key questions. But you're already focusing down on your diagnosis that this is likely to be a cardiac event based on your immediate impression of looking at the patient and the brief bit of history that they have come up with. Your course of action then is going to depend on where you are. Out in the community with you, I suspect it's calling, well, you will start whatever treatment you can start there and then and get them to hospital as soon as possible. If I see this while I'm seeing someone on a ward, it's going to be slightly different because it's based on our experiences and what we actually have available to us. But we keep going round and round in this loop. The key thing is that we do not compare options. We jump to a conclusion and we go with that. And if it doesn't actually meet all of those expectancies, we may need to loop back up to the top and actually go into a slightly slower process to decide what's happening. So errors in natural decision settings Klein has come up with are actually down to three things. Lack of experience. If you've never seen this pattern before, then you can't jump to an immediate conclusion about it. And at that point, you may need to go into a slightly more rational decision making where you actually it's much slower. So inexperienced individuals will take longer to decide what's going on. There may be a lack of information there. It may be the same person with this chest pain is coming in looking absolutely fine and you need to dig a little bit deeper to actually find out what's going on. And then de minimis error as well. De minimis error is explaining away evidence that may um, have actually been useful. And it's different to um, confirmation bias. 
confirmation bias is where you specifically go looking for information that will support your theory. De minimis error is where you go, you might actually actively go looking for contradictory information, but then you decide that it's not relevant. So someone coming in with slightly blurry vision on top of everything else now, you might just say, well, actually, that's probably because you've spent the last 10 months working at home and you've been using screens more than normal, so we can discount that, as opposed to it being part of a multi-system problem that might actually aid in your diagnosis. There's an awful lot about how stress affects our decision-making and whether that's stress because we feel stressed or whether it's down to distractions or noise or conversations or, or a sort of um, pulling on our time. The effects of stress on decision-making are possibly not quite as straightforward as everyone makes out. They probably affect our diagnosis of a situation more than they do the actions that we take. So if we're under pressure and if we're stressed, it causes tunnel vision, it causes us to focus down, it does compromise our situational awareness, so it means we probably don't gather as much information, which means we may not gather all the correct information. Interestingly, the more experienced an individual is, the better they are at picking the relevant cues, even under times of stress. But certainly when we're under stress, we don't gather as much information. It also disrupts our ability to use our working memory. If we're trying to sort of blank out various other things or we're being pulled from pillar to post and someone's trying to talk to you, the actual simulation part of it, whether that's diagnosing what the situation is or whether it's actually thinking through the consequences of the action that we've chosen, it's much harder to talk through things in our head. And similarly, stresses distract attention from the task at hand by constantly pulling us away from those thought processes. So we may be going through some sort of mental simulation. We may be talking to ourselves. And if someone else is trying to talk to us, that distracts from that as well. So we've got two types of decision-making. And basically the rational choice strategy is great and is more commonly used if there's a need for justifying our decisions. If there's some sort of conflict, we need resolution so that we can justify things afterwards. If we're looking for the optimal way of approaching something, or if there's greater computational complexity. Whereas the recognition prime decision-making, which is the one where you jump to a conclusion about familiarity and therefore have an option as to the course of action available to you straight away, is much more likely when you're under greater time pressure. It's much more likely if you have a high level experience, if there's dynamic uncertain conditions and ill-defined goals. And that describes a lot of the decision-making that we do in the medical profession. So it's all very well knowing how people make decisions. And as I say, this is based on not a theoretical thing, but actually how people do make decisions rather than how we think they should make decisions. But if we know about it, the only real purpose of knowing about it is to try and improve things. So how can we improve our decision making? Well, the first thing is to improve access to reliable, timely, accurate information. And one of the things with that is knowing things that can impair it. So reducing the distractions reducing the multiple inputs that we have when we're trying to diagnose a problem. Recognise quickly when you should outsource the decision. It may be you're not the correct person to make that decision. And that may come, and I apologise for using examples that I'm more familiar with rather than necessarily you're more familiar with, but if I get called down to a trauma call at the hospital, maybe that I'm running it, it's very easy to say, right, what I want you to do is I want you to put a 14 gauge cannula in this patient. Now that's all very well, but why do you want that to happen? 
I want that to happen so I can get bloods and so I can make sure this patient has blood being infused in the next 10 minutes. Rather than micromanaging and trying to make all the decisions there, if you say to someone, right, what I want, I want bloods and I want blood going into this patient in the next 10 minutes. Any problems, let me know. You're outsourcing the decision making as to how optimally to get that to happen. So micromanaging it may not be the best option. Likewise, if it's something that someone in the team or someone you know can do better, you're better off immediately using their expertise rather than stressing and straining your own thought processes. Ian Wilson is a biologist whose particular interest is in uh, ant colonies, but he says we're drowning in information while starving for wisdom. The world henceforth will be run by synthesizers, people able to put together the right information at the right time, think, think critically about it and make important choices wisely. So know when you may not be the right person to make the decision. And then gaining breadth instead of depth of experience. The evidence shows that our time critical decision making is based on pattern recognition and the ability to recognize something as typical. And therefore, rather than depth of experience, we need to see lots of different things. And what Klein writes is if the purpose is to train people in time pressured decision making, we might require that the trainee make rapid responses rather than ponder all the implications. If we can present many situations an hour, several hours a day for days or weeks, we should be able to improve the trainee's ability to detect familiar patterns. The goal is to show many common cases to facilitate a recognition of typicality along with different types of rare cases so trainees will pre be prepared for these as well. That to me seems very similar to the 100 hour a week training that I went through over the first few years of my medical career. I saw hundreds and thousands of cases and I definitely see the difference now. The juniors are coming through a different system and this is no comment on them. This is the system they're working with and everyone is doing their best within that system. I have a much greater experience of some things than people at exactly the same stage now because I had seen so much more. Now that said, it's all very well going through this exposure to multiple uh, patterns and multiple situations, but it's only of benefit if you actually get feedback and if you reflect. And the feedback I'm talking about is not someone saying, yes, you did well there. It's the feedback you get by seeing the natural history of what happens as a result of your decision making. So you need timely diagnostic and accurate feedback. And in some ways, that's a lot easier for what I do because in anaesthetics, there's very rapid feedback. If the oxygen saturations drop and I give more oxygen, I get to see immediately whether there's a beneficial effect. If the heart rate goes up and I think it might be due to pain, I give something and it comes down. With those of you working out in GP land, quite often you don't get that immediate feedback. So reflecting on that and actually thinking about it when you see the results, how many days to weeks down the line can be more difficult. But to build patterns and to build typicality, you do need to see the natural history of you, the situation itself and our intervention. And then the other thing is to learn to act sooner rather than later. The other thing that uh, Man and Janice talked about was decision paralysis, that when you have so many options, you keep looking for more options to put into the mix to try and make your decision more accurate. And you're so desperate to do it that you're terrified of actually making a decision. And because there's uncertainty here and we know that actually we do base our decisions very much on snap decisions and intuition, we learn to act sooner and then 
get the feedback from it and go with it if it's working or change our mind if the dynamics change, then that can actually benefit our decision making. So we need to improve access to reliable, timely, accurate information. We need to recognise quickly when you should outsource the decision and then gain breadth instead of depth of experience and learn to act sooner than later. Make a decision is probably the key point here. If you make a decision, you can then see what happens and change it if necessary. But if you don't make a decision and you're tied in with this inertia and this decision analysis, you don't really get any further forward. So that's the diagnostic side of the recognition prime decision making model. Once you've decided on a course of action, how can you improve your simulation at that point? And the National Fire Rescue Service have done an awful lot of work on decision making with regards to this. And while it's particularly for multi-agency major incidents, some of their decision tools can be used and can actually provide a little bit of support and justification for what we're doing in our decision making. So when you've decided on a course of action, it's worth thinking, why are we doing this? Okay, what goals are linked to this decision? What's the rationale? And if you're working in a team environment, is that jointly agreed? But if not, what is the rationale for our course of action? Particularly for us, does it support working together, whether you're working in a team or not, saving lives and reducing harm? What you then want to do is what's the natural history of what you're going to do? What do we think is going to happen? We've decided this is the situation. We've decided this is the intervention that we're going to go down. What's the likely outcome of the action? In particular, what's the impact on the objective, which is with most of our cases, to make a patient feel better and get them back to normal health, normal for them? How will the incident change as a result of these actions? Someone comes in with a sore throat. Do you give them antibiotics? Do you not? Depends on whether you've decided this is viral, this is bacterial. How is it actually going to alter anything? If you give someone with a viral sore throat antibiotics, are they going to get better over the same time period anyway? So what's the likely outcome of the action? And then in light of these, do the benefits outweigh the risks? So for any decision making we use, based on this recognition prime decision making model, these three on their own can actually just slow things down and allow us to think through the decision making that we've come up with, probably without being able to put any explanation to it. And it allows us just a point of reflection. If you're working within a team, do we have a common understanding and position on the situation and its consequences, the available information? And basically this is a team working bit to make sure that everyone is happy that whatever course of action you or someone else or we as a team have decided on, everyone is in, ag in agreement. And you as an individual within that team, is this collective decision something that you agree with based on your professional judgment? So I said at the beginning, this is about critical decision making, not being critical of decision making. But we all are and we all judge the decisions of others. However charitably we like, we do see things like the headlines in the paper. And certainly a lot of the time, my first thought is, oh, my goodness, how on earth did that happen? Anthony Hidden, who ran the Clapham Junction rail accident um, investigation, wrote, there is almost no human action or decision that cannot be made to look more flawed and less sensible in the misleading light of hindsight. And this was very clear a couple of years ago when Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, was criticised um, 
for saying it would have been common sense to flee the Grenfell Tower fire, ignoring fire brigade advice. He was quite confident that if either of us, he or the person he was speaking to were in a fire, whatever the fire brigade said, we would leave the burning building. It just seems a common sense thing to do. What he's actually saying is that he would have given a better decision than the authority figures who gave the advice. And quite understandably, and from my point of view, rightly, he got criticised for this. The thing is, it's very easy for us to criticise him for doing that, but I guarantee that every single one of us has done exactly the same, maybe not in the public eye, but if you ever find yourself thinking, what on earth were they thinking, or why didn't they just do this, then we are in some ways doing a similar thing, because we're judging the decision-making of someone else based on the information we have available to us, which may not be what they had available to them. So how do we go from, oh my goodness, why didn't they just do such and such? to the position of the commissioner afterwards who wrote or said, knowing what we know now about Grenfell Tower and similar buildings with ACM cladding, our response would be very different. So how do we go from judging to reflecting what's happened and actually learning from those decision-making processes? Well, we need to acknowledge that the information available to the individual at the time may be different to what we see in retrospect. If you didn't see the cigar first time, it's leaping out at you now. And I'm always slightly nervous about showing this because it's so obvious to me that I can't believe people don't see the cigar. And yet some of you will not have seen the cigar first time. And it's very similar to the Indian uh, story about the six blind men who come across an elephant for the first time. And they judge the general nature of something by the specific information they have. And that's what we do. And it's very easy with the overview and the benefit of hindsight, we can look at this and go, well, we know it's an elephant, but the information they have available to them is very much context dependent. And you may have seen this before, but the context of this is very important because those birds are exactly the same color. The information that our brain is processing as raw data is identical, but the context of it is what makes things completely different. So when we want to understand why people made decisions, instead of judging with the benefit of hindsight and knowing how the process turned out, what we should do is be more curious and more compassionate and work on the principle that most of us are actually doing our best. There's very few people who go out of their way to deliberately cause harm. So what did you know at the time? What did the individual who was making the decision know? What did you assume? What resources did you have? What options did you consider? What made you choose the option you did? Were there any other options available to you? Exploring all this in an understanding way rather than a judgmental way can actually reveal huge amounts of information that may help you understand the decision-making process of someone else, but may also allow a huge amount of learning. And I've been doing quite a lot of work um, about this with critical decision analysis. We've used it particularly with regards to adverse incidents, but by turning this into a team review, as opposed to the traditional root cause analysis, which is very, um, I think, difficult to get an accurate assessment out of. It involves a whole load of different statements, most of which won't agree completely. And then someone making a decision as to which option is the correct one and then making a judgment based on what they read. We get a team together, we get all the individuals concerned together and we focus on the actions rather than the people. What happened and what the rationale was 
people are doing that. And we turn it into stories and embrace the narrative tradition of medicine. As I said, we don't process raw data, we turn it into stories. And we're learning huge amounts from it and managing to change practice based on what happened rather than what we think should have happened. And so we can go from the judging critical approach to everyone's decision making to actually a slightly more growth mindset and learning mindset and benefiting from the knowledge of those who were there at the time. Because this obsession with human error, human error is basically referred to when someone did or did not do something that they were not or were supposed to do according to someone else who almost certainly wasn't there at the time. So it's a very easy label to put on there, but it doesn't particularly help us. So if we want to improve performance and decision making, yes, we need to understand how errors come about and try and reduce those, but we also need to increase the insights and expertise and knowledge as to how we actually make these decisions. It's very easy to make a suggestion as to how to improve things. But what you need to do is remember that a common mistake that people make when trying to design something completely foolproof is to underestimate the ingenuity of complete fools. And just as a final tip for you, you can distinguish an alligator from a crocodile by paying attention to whether the animal sees you later or in a while. Thank you very much for your time and for listening. And I apologize that it is a very dry topic without the interaction that we would normally get in person. But thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kenwin. That was absolutely brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Um, so many things to think about. Uh, got lovely uh, remark coming through from uh, one of the delegates already. Really interesting. Thank you. Very enjoyable and helpful. I quite agree. Just, Anybody have any questions that they would like to, like to ask at this point? Anyone want to um, pop anything in the chat there? So much to think about. Um, it was making me think all the way through, I think um, as, uh, from the point of view as a GP, that idea of breadth of experience, I think that's something that comes with time. Probably most GPs agree that the first five years of practice are the, the years in which you start to develop that breadth of experience, which we later really rely on. Um, and uh, lots of other things that you were saying really resonated. I don't know how many of the, the delegates agree, but um, as GPs, you're quite right. We certainly don't get the uh, immediate feedback that you as an, an anaesthetist would get from seeing the results of your actions. As GPs, we often never know what would have happened if we hadn't. Exactly. We know that most of our GP patients uh, will get better despite our best efforts. Um, and so if a patient doesn't come back, is that because we did exactly the right thing? Is it because it didn't matter? And I think as GPs, that's that's really, really important for us to, to remember. Um, when you were talking about the different factors that we use uh, in making decisions, I was, I was thinking back to my very last patient of this evening before I, I joined you here when I, I heard myself saying it I was looking back I could hear myself saying it so so are your ears really itchy because I'd already decided what the diagnosis was and I wanted them to say yes and then I would say good I know what to do so that that confirmation bias I think I'm definitely guilty of doing that I'm going to need to to watch out for that in in the future um, got another lovely comment there. Thank you. That was brilliant. Will we be able to see the slides later? Yes, I think you will. And I think Jana will be able to, to sort that out. One other thing, I don't know um, what you think, Kenwin, or some of the other 
uh, delegates might have a, a view on this. We're practicing completely differently. I mean, all doctors are, but in general practice, we are practicing completely differently now. And I have much less information coming at me from the point of view of being able to see a patient. Now I can mainly just hear them. Um, and it's hugely disconcerting suddenly not to have that input that I've been used to for the last 20 years of being able to eyeball somebody and the huge amount of information that that gives me. And I have found myself quite willing to confess it, thinking patient's not here, patient can't see me. I can Google to my heart's content while they're yeah. talking to me. And the other day I thought to myself, why am I doing this? Why am I trusting something that I have never relied upon before, which is distracting my attention away from the information that I do have, which is listening. And uh, so I switched it off. And I don't know what you think about that. So I, I think that, that there is a big push on using the technology available to help us make decisions. I think the thing with that is it's very dependent on asking the correct questions. And so, yes, we have access to whatever information we want now, but your experience is allowing you to ask certain questions that someone less experienced would be asking less finessed questions. And I think one of the things about the way GP um, consultations are going now, those of you in the profession who've been doing it for a while, that's all very well. You are using the experience you have, and it's similar to us being on call. So I get called at you know three o'clock in the morning with a registrar saying, what, this, 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 and this. And 20 years of experience allows me to say, okay, it's likely to be this or this and ask relevant questions. Someone who doesn't have that experience to start with, if I rang up an SHO at three o'clock in the morning and gave them exactly the same story, they would not have any experience to base their decision-making on. And it's the thing that concerns me a little bit, in fact, not a little bit, a lot about some of the stuff I've heard saying, well, now everything's fine by a telephone consultation. So let's stick with that when people, when, when life goes back to normal in some way. Yes, there will be some things that can be done that way, but it prevents people building up the mental models and building up the patterns that are allowing you experienced clinicians to do your job so well at the moment. My wife's a paediatrician and she hates the online uh, system because part of her consultation, she refuses to let nursing staff go and get the patient. She goes out into the waiting room and she looks at the interaction between patient and parent from the moment she calls them to them going into the whole consultation there and if she has this consultation over the internet very similar to what you're saying quite often the child won't be anywhere to be seen she's just talking to the parent or even if she is talking to the um, child the interaction is different so her decision making and her experience aren't allowed to perform to the ability that they would in the normal situation so i think that we are able to cope to a limited extent at the moment because of the fact we've got all that experience from in-person consultations and that will disappear in the same way that reducing doctor's hours reduces the amount of experience and I'm not saying that we shouldn't reduce doctor's hours I, I just think that the breadth of experience you pick up is reduced dramatically if you don't see people and if you do fewer hours and so I would be a big fan I don't know about the logistics of it but going back to the most of the time the old system when we were able to yeah thank you I, I i can't wait to be back to seeing all my patients again um and uh we've got lots of questions lots of things popping up in the chat here i mean from a personal perspective i can vividly remember a very stressful 
time in the middle of the night when I was a junior doctor and I needed to make a decision under fairly um, acute emergency uh, conditions and going against the protocol that was laminated and stuck to the wall was the right thing to do and yeah. really indicated marked the transition for me into being a, a mature experienced clinician and uh, and I will never forget the, the thought process that were going on in my head you know everyone's telling me that it's got to be this but I just believe it's not right and and that that's something is very difficult to quantify but what you've been talking about was really helpful um Alison uh, says, I agree with what you just said about remote working and, and thanks for a very interesting talk. Yes, I quite agree. Uh, Camilla, brilliant food for thought, really interesting, well presented, not dry at all. And I like the ask to be more curious and compassionate. Absolutely right. Michael asks, do expert witnesses properly understand the significance of hindsight bias when writing reports around alleged error? Do they? I... So my opinion on the, is none of... I don't know whether they understand it or not, but they do not make sufficient reference to it. I, through the mediation stuff that I do, um, I'm um, working to get on the NHS mediation panel for clinical negligence. And part of that involves observing a certain number of NHS mediations, regardless of the other mediations I've done. And the last one that I uh, observed, I get sent the papers and it was a fascinating read from the different opinions given by clinicians on each side of the claim. Um, it's very, and some of them are saying, you know, frankly, it's negligent to have done this. I cannot believe for a moment that this could have happened. Others give a completely different opinion, but very few of them go back and pay attention to the decision-making at the time. I think your comment about hindsight bias, my take on it is everything I've seen, and I'm seeing more and more now because I mediate with and I teach mediation with a bunch of lawyers who are involved in clinical negligence cases as well as the mediation and I am seeing more and more of the reports that come through and a huge number of them are written knowing the outcome um, and we don't know the outcome when we make the decision and so we should be judged and we should um, explore the information that was available at the time of the decision making rather than the outcome and if we look at process and decision making rather than outcome then you know that is the way forward but uh, the short answer is no I don't think they do give it sufficient emphasis. Thank you that's a great answer I'm sure you're familiar with and I'm probably going to get all, all of this the detail wrong but a group of individuals being asked to make the decision hypothetically as to whether money and uh infrastructure and time should be spent on a flood defense system in a particular town and a group of people argued about it and some thought it should and some thought it shouldn't maybe a 50 50 split and another group was given the information that this particular town had flooded and should they in fact have spent the money and time on a flood defense system and unsurprisingly almost everyone in the group said well of course why would they not have done that uh, so as you say yeah easy to look back. Uh, Lawrence makes a very uh, good point here. If the on-call physician needs 122 hours of reading for a 24-hour period, how much reading should a GP be doing when we cover every single speciality there is? Very good point. Uh, so, the, so the pedant in me would say, uh, it didn't say that they should do that much reading, they just said they would have needed to do that if they were going to pay strict adherence to the uh, guidelines. And the whole point of this is that actually I don't think you should do that amount of reading um 
I, I think it's just difficult because every single one of those, and as you point out, it would be potentially more, those are the things that we are judged against if anything goes wrong. Yeah. And that's where the difficulty comes. Uh, but I've got no idea how much the uh, policies and protocols would require you to read to accurately reflect them. Okay, thank you. And uh, just one more question, which has not appeared from, in the chat, but uh, from another source. Um, GPs deal with uncertainty. Indeed, we do. Is that skill improved with a bias towards decision making? I think that means is the skill of dealing with uncertainty improved? I'm still not sure that I understand the question. Um, I think that part of the decision-making thing is not exactly embracing the uncertainty, but acknowledging that it that there is uncertainty, and therefore you can't collect all the information necessary. We do deal with dynamic situations, and however certain you are, this might be the you know the zebra rather than the horse. You know we know that you know if it's clip-clopping down the street and it looks like a horse, it's almost certainly a horse. But however certain you are, there is always that uncertainty. So continually going back and reviewing, acknowledging that we work in an uncertain world um, and reviewing it to pick up any evidence that it's not the obvious, I think, is the, is the way forward there. Um, but as I say, I think making a decision uh, is the key thing. And if you have to acknowledge the uncertainty to do that, then... I don't. I feel I haven't quite understood the question. Therefore, probably haven't answered it properly. I've, I don't think I quite understood the question either. But thank you for for, <laughs> for that. Uh, but one final. I know we've kept Doctor um, Doctor James for a long time, um, but we've got another question from Julia, who uh, is saying, uh, "Fascinating. Thank you. I quite agree." What do you think of the GMC letter around decision making in the pandemic and doctors' actions? I think we, we need to make this the last question so we can let Dr. James get on with his day. But um, yes, it's interesting, isn't it? The GMC saying, "Don't worry. We get that you're doing unfamiliar stuff, and, we, and uh, we'll take that into consideration." Yeah, the problem okay. is it's not the GMC who take the legal action afterwards would be my comment on that. So whilst the GMC claim to be supportive, I would take that with a pinch of salt, having seen other cases over the last however long, which clearly demonstrate that we don't always look at what was going on, on the ground at the time. Um, and as I say, it's all very well for the GMC to say that, but on the whole, clinical negligence claims do not go through the GMC. So again, we'll be judged on a different scale afterwards, I suspect. And I think that a lot of what we do in medicine is assessment and mitigation of risk. And I think that different individuals have different degrees of comfort dealing with that. And I suspect that that letter will make almost no difference to any individual's uh, comfort in making those decisions, is my personal opinion. Okay. Thank you, thank you very much. I think we, we would uh, need to leave it there. Thank you so much, Kenwin. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, really, really important stuff, particularly in this very uncertain world. Uh, if nobody has anything else to, to ask, then um, thank you all very much for coming and enjoy the rest of your evening. Kenwin, thank you very much once again. That was really, really great. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, everyone.